You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. We do have our sermon slides available through our shared Google Drive folder, so if you want to get the bulletin and access through that link, you can have the slides to reference either today or at a later time as well. John chapter 13, I told you as we wrapped up um, John chapter 12 that um, the remaining portion of this book focuses very intentionally on the, um, the last few earthly days of Jesus. Um, John chapter 12 picks up uh, really close to the crucifixion. Um, John chapter 13, uh, we're, we're hours uh, from the crucifixion. Um, and so Jesus has some real important things to say um, as he prepares to leave his disciples. And so we're going to be seeing that in the coming uh, weeks and months as we uh, start to look towards the end of the Gospel of John. Um, but today in John chapter 13, um, I want to read for us our text this morning, and then we'll jump right into what God ha- would have us to see. It says in verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What am I doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand? Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you, if you do them. This is probably a familiar passage to us, um, the washing of the disciples' feet. It's the only gospel that it's mentioned in. Um, It's certainly a a great passage to see what it means and what it looks like uh, to serve others. Um, Some great leadership lessons contained in this passage. I know that um, when we were at Mount Gilead, uh, we would always take the um, seniors on a trip before um, their senior year. We would take them down to the lake. We would take all of our youth group to the lake uh, for kind of a back-to-school lake trip, but we'd always take our seniors down um, a night early. And 
Um, we would spend some time talking with them about what it meant to be a senior, what it meant to lead well during their senior year. And myself and the other youth workers, we would always wash the feet of, of our seniors as they opened up their senior year to try to impress upon them what it was going to look like for them to be servant-type leaders now that they were in that role within our youth group as, as senior leadership. And so it's a great passage to, to see what it looks like to humbly lead others through our acts of service. And I think Jesus meant for us to really hone in on that idea. Um, he talks about uh, being an example here in this passage, right? That he's using his actions here as a teaching tool, right? Something that he wants them to, to replicate, to model, not just for his disciples in that room, but ultimately for those of us that, that claim his name and follow him today. All right, so from a summary sentence standpoint, Jesus provided an example of what it means to serve others humbly and calls us to follow him by finding ways to do the same. Jesus provided an example of what it means to serve others humbly and calls us to follow him by finding ways to do the same. For our kids, one of the best ways to follow Jesus is to serve other people. As you're writing that down, for those that are taking notes, this passage begins what is commonly known as the upper room discourse. This is, again, Jesus with his disciples uh, leading up to the crucifixion. Uh, It's been estimated that it was probably 15 to 18 hours before the crucifixion of Jesus. So again, what we're going to see over the coming weeks all takes place within a matter of of a few hours uh, as Jesus's betrayal is about to occur even the passage here references that fact that, that Judas and the enemy, their, their plan is, is, is working and, and going to be enacted here very soon. Um, and so Jesus really portrays like his final thoughts, his final teachings to his disciples while they're in this upper room uh, prior to the crucifixion. I think it's important to note um, that while we are close to the crucifixion here, Jesus is fully aware of what's going on, right? The text talks about um, that this is occurring when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus knowing all these things, right? And then even the discussion that Jesus is having with Peter and the disciples, he references the fact that he knows Judas is going to betray him, right? I love, and I'll just skip down and, and read this. We'll get to it um, next week. In verse 27, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, talking about Judas. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Um, I mean, that passage right there even indicates to us that Jesus is in control of what Satan and Judas are up to, right? Like he gets to determine when it happens and how it happens and how quickly it happens, right? Like Jesus is giving the instructions uh, for his own crucifixion. Right? Like he's, he's, he's only allowing the enemy to do what fits into his plans. And so I think it's worth noting there that even as Jesus is kind of saying his goodbyes, giving these final teachings, um, it's certainly not that he's about to be caught off guard or surprised by what the enemy's trying to do. Um, told you that Jesus references the actions in this chapter as an example. It's a teaching tool that is meant to be followed. And so we're really going to focus in on, on that example that Jesus sets here by washing the disciples' feet. But there's a couple other things that, that I want to mention just by way of introduction that I think are really important to this passage as well. First off, that him washing the disciples' feet is a picture of spiritual cleansing, 
right? There's, there's more going on here than just a physical cleansing. We know that because Jesus washes all the disciples' feet and yet talks about one of them not being clean, that being Judas, right? Well, Judas was as clean as anybody else there. Physically, he had just undergone the same cleansing as the other disciples. But Jesus shows that what's really at play here is more of a picture of spiritual cleansing, right? Because Judas is not clean. What also is contained for us here is this idea of an overall cleansing, an overall salvation viewed by this bath that Jesus references, right? And then what we would call a daily cleansing pictured through the washing of the, of the feet, right? So in, in these times, you would take a bath, and then if you were to uh, journey to someone's house, your feet are going to get dusty and dirty because of the, the way their shoes were, the way the roads were. And when you arrived upon that new location, it wasn't that you needed a full bath again. You just simply needed to be cleansed down below where you had been walking, right? And so it's a picture of, of us as Christians being saved daily confessing our sins and experiencing that regular cleansing that, that is supposed to happen. In 1 John uh, chapter 1, we see this pictured for us. Uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So there's this daily cleansing that we can experience as Christians, not a re-salvation that occurs in our life, but simply a daily confession that keeps us sensitive to sin and keeps us walking that path of holiness with Christ. He pictures that for us through the washing of the disciples' feet. There's also this picture of Christian humility, putting the needs of others above our own conveniences. Um, and, that, and that's the one that we're really going to hone in on, this idea of Christian humility. What Jesus shows an example of here is putting the needs of others above our own conveniences. And he's the perfect example of this because he's the one who, who uh, possesses the most qualifications to where he should not be serving anyone, right? Like he, he has the loftiest position. It should be his disciples that are washing his feet, and yet he is the one who takes it upon himself to wash theirs. And so he's the, the perfect demonstration of humility because if anyone deserved to be served in this setting, it's Jesus. And yet he is the one who is demonstrating the service. So let's jump right in to our text. I want to give you um, six ways that we serve others this morning that I think are, are clearly shown to us here in the text. Uh, lots of application for us. Uh, hope, hopefully uh, lots of conviction for us as well. Um, conviction in, in such a way that we are encouraged to live differently as we leave today. Um, Jesus provides an example, what it means to serve others humbly, calls us to follow him by finding ways to do the same. For our kids, the best ways to follow Jesus is to serve other people. Number one, we serve others even in our darkest hours. Serve others even in your darkest hours. Let's look at the context here. Jesus is going to give an example of serving other people right? But he, he waits to do this 15 to 18 hours before he's going to be brutally beaten and hung on a cross to die for the sins of the world, right? He's demonstrating to us that we, we still are called to serve people even when we are experiencing our darkest hour. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, 
We've seen in John previously him talking about the fact that his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. John points out that when Jesus knew his hour had come, right, this, this troubling hour, this dark hour, we saw in chapter 12, the, the, the feelings and the emotions that Jesus is feeling about what is to come here shortly. It's in this darkest hour that Jesus sets forth this greatest act of service towards his disciples. All right, the truth that I want you to see here in this passage is that our call to serve is not based on when it is convenient to our circumstances. Our call to serve others is not based on when it is convenient to our circumstances. But oftentimes that's, when, that's how we approach it, right? As we seek to, to live out our Christian faith and we seek to serve other people, more often than not, we choose to serve if it's convenient to our circumstances. And if it's not, then we kind of pull back on that act of service. But what we find in Philippians, when we're called to put the needs of others above our own needs, right? In Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two, verse one says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then Paul appeals to the perfect example of this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul's appealing to this church at Philippi. And what is he telling them? He's telling them to be like-minded, to be unified in their approach to loving each other, serving each other. And he calls them to this, this perspective of constantly putting the needs of others above their own needs. And what's his context? Because he's certainly seeking to do this as well. well. His context is that he's in jail, Right? And he's not writing to the church, appealing to them, hey, come serve me, come take care of me, send your money to me, I'm in dire distress, I need help, right? Like you'll even find at the back end of Philippians 4, he's like, you can keep your money, I'm content with whatever I have, right? Like I appreciate the gift that you sent, but I didn't have to have it because I've learned to be content with whatever I have, right? Instead, he's writing in Philippians 1, he says, man, I'm really torn, I'd love to go and die and be with Jesus, but I really know I need to stay here for you guys. Like for your sake, I need to stay on this earth. For your sake, I need to be able to write the book of Philippians, right? So here he is in jail, suffering for the sake of the gospel, kind of feels like he's on the back end of his life. Like I'm ready to go be with Jesus, but you know what? I feel like I probably need to stay here in jail and write the book of Philippians to you. Paul is a, is a good demonstration of what it looks like to serve other people when it's not convenient to your circumstances, right? And, and that's certainly what Jesus is laying out for us as well. He should, be, he should be having all of his last wishes fulfilled here this, this night before his crucifixion, right? If anybody should be served, it's Jesus, right? 
And yet he is going to lay out, he is going to lay out this example of humility by serving even in his darkest hour. So my, my appeal to you uh, would be don't lose sight of the fact that there are still opportunities for you to serve when you're going through a difficult time, right? When, when circumstances are not desirable for you, when, when you look around and say, these are not the circumstances that I would choose, right? That, that I'm, I'm in between jobs or uh, a close one to me is, is sick and, and maybe even terminally sick or, or there, there's, there's difficulties going on with my kids or my marriage. Like those aren't opportunities to take a break from serving other people. That's not an opportunity to say, here's when I don't have to put the needs of others above my own needs, right? What Paul says in Philippians is that we always do this, we, we always put the needs of others above our own needs, even when we have great needs, even when we are in our darkest hour and we have some of the most needful times of our life, we're still called to put the needs of others above our own needs, right? We serve others even in our darkest hours. Jesus sets the example. Paul follows the example. We too are called to adapt this type of philosophy in our own life. Number two, serve others from a mindset of love. Serve others from a mindset of love. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We see that what Jesus is about to do by washing the feet of his disciples, it is motivated by love. It comes from a mindset of of love. So the truth to remember here is that love should be the driving force behind our service. This isn't some last minute act of righteousness that Jesus is trying to do to earn the favor of his disciples or to earn the favor of his father, right? We'll see here in a couple of verses, Jesus knows some things about himself, right? He knows that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Right? Like all those things are guaranteed to happen whether he washes the disciples' feet or not. Right? He, is, he is right where he's supposed to be in the Father's will. He doesn't need to do this out of some duty to earn God's favor, which lets us know that we don't serve other people to earn God's favor either. We don't do it to earn their favor. We don't do it to earn God's favor. We do it out of mindset of love. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Loving others by serving them is the clearest indicator of our salvation. Let me say that again. Loving others by serving them is the clearest indicator of our salvation. And I mean clearest indicator both to us and to others. It is evidence to others and it, it assures us ourselves of our salvation. That's what we see, same author in 1 John. So we've got John writing this gospel of John, and then he picks back up in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he begins to write about the, the call that we have as followers of Jesus to love our brethren, right? And he uses it as a, a, um, a piece of evidence or a piece of assurance to know whether we're in the faith or not. Because that's, that's this, this, this question that we're constantly asking ourselves. 
um, am I saved or am I not saved? Especially when we're younger and we make a profession of faith and then we start to know Jesus more and, and then we fall into some sin and we confess that. And, and there's this tension, this battle of, am I a Christian or not? Because I, I know what a Christian's supposed to be and so oftentimes I'm not that, right? And so John writes and he says, I, I've written this book so that you'll know, so that you'll know if you're a believer or not, right? Wouldn't it be awesome if we could all sit with Jesus and Jesus could look at us and say, you're clean, right? Because that's what he does to Peter. I mean, Peter gets 100% assurance from Jesus that you are clean, right? Some of you are not clean. So Jesus can also tell people who aren't believers that they're not believers, right? He's telling Judas, you're not clean, right? But he tells Peter, you are clean. Man, that, that, would, that would be the greatest assurance possible, right? To just sit down and have a conversation with Jesus. And he says, hey, you're a Christian. Quit worrying about it, right? Like you're saved, but we don't get that. We don't get the privilege of being able to do that. And so John writes 1 John and says, here's how you have assurance of your salvation. Do you, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe the right things about Jesus, that he came in the flesh, that he is God's son, right? Do you love Jesus or love the things of this world, right? And then do you love other people? Right? These, are, these are indicators to us as to whether or not we're in the faith or not. And one of the clearest evidences of our salvation is, loving others by serving them. It's evidence to other people, and it's an assurance to us about our salvation. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Right? Like he's, he's, he's saying like, you're gonna have times where, where you're doubting and you don't have assurance. And he says, here's how you have assurance. You, you, you don't just love in word and, and, and talk. You, you do it in deed and in truth, right? Not to earn God's favor, but to, to, show, to show your salvation to be true. You, you know that Jesus has done everything necessary for your salvation. In our passage here in John, it says that Jesus knows what's about to happen, right? He knows that, he, um, that the Father has given him all things. He knows that he's come from God. He knows that he's going back to God. He's not doing any of this to earn God's favor. He already has his Father's favor, right? He's doing this out of love for his disciples, and we too are called to serve, not out of some Christian religious duty or responsibility that somehow earns our salvation or earns favor with God. We do it out of love for each other. The truth is that love should be the driving force behind our service. Number three, we serve others even when you deserve to be served. Serve others even when you deserve to be served. Now, I put deserve in quotes because really we never deserve to be served, but there's certainly times, moments, circumstances that would make us feel like, here's where I'm supposed to be served, right? Times where, where I certainly feel that way, times when I'm sick, right? Well, well, this is clear opportunity for people to serve me because I'm not feeling 100% right now, Right? We serve others even when we deserve to be served. 
verse 3 says that Jesus knows that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God, that he was going back to God. We know that he's in his darkest hour, right? Like these are all indicators to us. Hey, everybody's feet needs to be washed right here, right? Who's going to do that? Well, it shouldn't be Jesus, right? It shouldn't be Jesus because Jesus is about to go to the, the, the cross, right? Like he's about to be really, really, really unfathomably uncomfortable, right? He's the one that should not have to lower himself and deal with everybody's dirty feet and step away from eating in order to do that. Like if anybody should be exempt from having to serve right here, it's Jesus. And yet what we see, the truth that we see here is that Jesus was willing to serve despite his lofty position with the Father. Jesus even alludes to this down below and says, um, verse 13, you call me teacher, you call me Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Right, he's their rabbi, he's their teacher. And the way the traditions would have worked is that the disciples of the rabbi were viewed as his servants in some ways. Right, so they were responsible for serving Jesus according to the way the rabbi tradition worked in that time. So Jesus says, you're right to see me as teacher. You're right to see me as Lord. You're right to put that lofty title, that lofty position upon me. And then he says in verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, which I am, if I have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Who's the master here in this passage? It's Jesus. Who's the sender here in this passage? It's Jesus, right? He's about to send these guys to the ends of the earth to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He's the sender. He's the master. He's the one with the lofty position, and yet he's the one who is doing the serving. So despite his high position, he was willing to go low in his service. Jesus basically says, if he, the master, was willing and capable of serving, how much more should we since we are lower than our master. I put in my notes, our deepest joys in life are not when people hail us for our status, but instead when they are helped by us in our service. Our deepest joys in life are not when people hail us or praise us for our status, but instead when they are helped by us in our service. I remember... um, my dad, and for all the flaws that my dad had, um, I remember one, one situation that really stood out to me. Um, I remember he used to take me to uh, school every morning. We would go work out before school, and um, I'd go sit in his office before school, um, and then I would leave his office when school started. And so we had this time together for, I guess, the last four, last three years of high school. Um, and I remember there was a time where there was something wrong with the toilet. Um, and, and one of the bathroom toilets was messed up. And it would have been perfectly right, perfectly okay, uh, probably anticipated and expected for my dad to call the maintenance guy and tell him to handle the bathroom. But I remember my dad intentionally taking upon himself as the pastor of the church, as the principal of the church, as the administrator over everything on the campus, him taking responsibility to go and to deal with the bathroom issue. I remember him going down the hallway. I remember very vividly him holding the plunger to go deal with the issues in the bathroom. 
right? He was, he was modeling he was modeling something there that even in his lofty position there at the school and at the church, that there wasn't a job that was below him, right? That, that he was willing to, to set an example that when something needs to be done, doesn't matter who's around, doesn't matter what position you hold, when there's a need, you serve, you just do it, right? And then that's, that's something that my dad taught me early, that, that it doesn't matter what position we hold, doesn't matter how important we think we are, doesn't matter how dirty or grimy the job is, if there's a need and we see it and we notice it, then we should take care of it, right? And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He deserves to be served, and yet he's the one doing the serving. Number four, serve others even when they don't deserve it. Serve others even when they don't deserve it. It's the other flip of the coin here. We serve others when we feel like we do deserve it. It should be me that's being served here. We maintain a mentality that, nope, this is a chance for me to serve. Right? My darkest hour, I should be served. Nope, I'm going to serve others. And we don't withhold our service from somebody who we think doesn't deserve it. And that's the, that's the, the key piece to, to what's happening here is that it's in this context, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing these things, right? It's then that he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And Judas is lumped in here. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, right? There's no indication here that Judas gets bypassed. Now think about being there in that setting. The disciples don't know everything that's happening, right? But imagine being there in that setting and knowing this, like having this background, knowing that, that in some mysterious way, Satan is entering into Judas here, right? And Jesus is down on his hands and knees and he's washing Judas's feet. Here's the guy who, who's determined that his value is what? Four months' salary, right? Like, there's this perfume over here. That's worth like a year's salary. Why in the world are we breaking it and washing Jesus's feet with it, right? Judas is nowhere near Jesus's feet, right? Like, he's not interested at all in washing his feet, certainly not willing to take something valuable and apply it to Jesus's feet. But Jesus throws all that out. He's about to go sell him for, for a hand, handful pieces of silver, right? He gets down and he washes his feet, would have been just as dirty as everybody else's, maybe a little bit dirtier because he's just dirty all over, right? He's washing his feet. He's about to be the instrument, the tool for Jesus's murder. And Jesus knows every intricate detail. Jesus has already called him a devil earlier in their ministry, right? Like Jesus knows who this guy is. He's allowed him to stick around, right? Has allowed him to continue to reap the benefits of Jesus's ministry. And it's here that Judas gets to reap the benefit of humble service, Jesus washing his feet. The truth here is that Jesus was willing to serve his disciples while they were consumed with selfishness. It's easy for us to point out that Judas is the one who doesn't deserve to be served here, but really all these knuckleheads don't deserve to be served right here, right? Because we learn from Luke chapter 22 that before this happens, the disciples are caught up in an argument about who is the greatest amongst them. 
right? Like, like Jesus is about to go die for the pride that they're demonstrating, right? Like they're talking about who's the greatest and arguing about it. No, no desire to put each other's needs behind. I mean, they haven't even thought about the fact that each other's feet are so dirty and that nobody's willing to humble themselves and to wash because apparently there's no servant around. There's nobody that's assigned this job. So it would just have to be somebody who says, oh, I, I need to do this, right? It's in, it's in that setting where, where, where Jesus washes their feet. So yes, you got Judas who's about ready to go turn Jesus in so he can be killed. But you also got all these other disciples who are, who are yapping about who's the best, Who's the greatest amongst them? They're all caught up in selfishness, and Jesus is willing to serve his selfish disciples. Right? You, you read the first part of the passage where it says he loved them to the end, and you're just like, man, that's awesome. Right? So great that Jesus loved his disciples to the end. And then you, then you need to step back and think, like, it's pretty amazing that he loved them to the end, right? Because here he is about to give his life for them, and they're caught up in which one of them is greater, right? Rather than just worshiping at his feet and washing his feet, treasuring those final moments, they're trying to figure out which one of them is better. So I I read that a little bit differently in that context. He loved them to the end, right? He overlooked these these flaws, these, these daily cleansings that still need to happen in their heart. He loved them to the end, and he served them. He didn't just love them in talk or in word. He did it in deed and in truth. This group of people that don't deserve his service to them, he willfully gives it to them. He serves them when they are their ugliest. I put in my notes that no one could treat us worse than Judas treated Jesus, and yet he was still the recipient of Jesus' service. What does that tell us? That, that, that there, there's nobody that would be exempt from our service then, right? Like Judas treated Jesus worse than any human being could ever treat us. He was shown, he was shown love and kindness and service and grace and mercy, and he, and he threw it all away for silver. He abandoned his master, turned him over to the authorities. And yet Jesus says, you know what? Get in line. I'll wash your feet too. So there's nobody in our life that we can ever put into a category that says, I'll serve these people, but not this person. Not because of what this person did. They will not get my service. We don't get to say that. We're always called to put the needs of others above our own needs. Every single person. Number five, serve others by doing the jobs nobody else wants to do. We serve others by doing the jobs nobody else wants to do. says that he rose from, supper. he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I don't know if you've ever washed somebody's feet before, but, but a lot of people have like weird, weird feelings about feet in general, right? Like we, we think feet are gross, nasty. Um, most people's feet stink. Right, so even even with modern modern things that we have, not the dusty sandals that they had back in the day, like our socks and our shoes that that are meant to keep our feet clean, that they create some weird smells, right? And it starts early. I mean, my my, my boy's feet stink, like when they take their shoes off. 
especially when they don't wear socks or their tennis shoes. I mean, it's just like a, a funky smell, right? It's not something that you just say, what do you want to do tonight? Well, let me wash your feet, right? Like, like that's not like usually on our list of things that we're desiring to do. And it certainly was the case for them. This was the lowest of the low. Um, you, you, you couldn't even be a Jewish slave. Like you couldn't be a Jew and have another Jew as your slave and ask them to wash your feet. It was reserved for non-Jewish people. It was like the lowest of the low acts because of how gross their feet were. They were dirty. They were dusty. They were muddy, right? And, and Jesus chooses to, to do this job that everybody else sitting there would have known needed to be done, right? Like, it's not like they're just like, oh man, I didn't even realize our feet were dirty. This is crazy that Jesus thought about washing our feet, right? Like it may have even been overpowering the meal a little bit. This is something that should have already been taken care of, should have already been done. They should have come to the table with clean feet because they're all going to be reclining at the table. The way their, their tables worked and the way their customs worked, they would have been like laying down around the table, right? Maybe your feet are even bumping into each other. This should have already been taken care of. And everybody knew that it hadn't been. And probably everybody is waiting and wondering who's the least greatest disciple that'll have to do this, right? Like we're all talking about who's the greatest. Whoever's not the greatest probably needs to go ahead and get on their hands and feet and start washing everybody's feet. And it's Jesus who steps up from supper and says, this needs to be done and I'm gonna show you. I'm gonna show you that it doesn't matter if you're the master, the Lord, the teacher, right? That you serve other people. Truth here is that there's always ways to serve, especially ways that nobody else wants to do, and the great ones embrace these joyfully. I mean, Jesus talks about you want to be great, then you serve, because your greatness doesn't exempt you from serving. So I believe that the great ones in God's book are those who, who see ways to serve. They identify the ways that nobody else wants to do them, and they embrace those opportunities joyfully. They say, oh, here, here's a task that nobody else wants to do. That's the one I'll take. That's the greatest act of service that I could do for that person or that group of people because it's the one thing that nobody else wants to do. And I'm going to embrace it joyfully. There's jobs like this at your house, right? Like nobody wants to empty the dishwasher. Nobody wants to take out the trash. Nobody wants to clean the bathrooms, right? You and your spouse have probably worked out who does that, or maybe there's shared responsibilities. But it's always a joyful thing when you come in and realize that somebody, one of, your, one of you, has done the task that, that the other didn't want to do. It's like, oh, wow, like the dishwasher's emptied. Like, that's awesome, right? Like, I know when I empty the dishwasher, Lauren will come in and say things like that. Like, thank you so much for emptying the dishwasher. Why? Because nobody wants to empty the dishwasher, right? Like, the only time you want to come into the kitchen is to eat, not to clean things, right? And, and when, the, when the sink's overflowing with dishes and you can't even put it in the dishwasher, and then somebody does that, there, there's, there's people in our church that sometimes will come over to our house and, and we'll be putting our kids to bed. And it's not uncommon for us to come out from, from doing that and to find that our kitchen has been cleaned. And it's just like, praise Jesus for you being at our house tonight that we don't have to do this, right? Like there's, there's, there's tasks like this around the house. There are tasks like this at your job place that nobody else wants to do that oftentimes gets left undone because everybody's looking around going, who's going to do it? Who's the least greatest person that's going to have to end up doing this? Because it's not me, because I hold this position here, right? Like, it's not me that's supposed to do this. It's somebody else who's lower that we typically try to pawn that off on. We serve others by doing jobs that nobody else wants to do. 
It was customary to do this before the meal. The fact that it hadn't been done yet shows that everyone was trying to avoid the obvious need. And they should have been lined up to wash Jesus' feet because he absolutely deserved it, and yet they are all looking the other way, hoping, hoping they don't get asked to do it. We're called to love selflessly, humbly, in the most menial, simple necessities of life. Jesus sets this example by washing their feet. And then he commands them to do the same, right? He commands them to go and wash each other's feet. I've given you an example, verse 15, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, this may raise the question as to whether or not we should actually be doing this as part of our church activities, right? We talk about ordinances within the church, and we talk about baptism. We talk about Lord's Supper, right? Those are two things that are not normal parts of our life, right? Like you don't, you don't ever baptize people really outside of a church. That's typically done within the church context. It's not a regular activity. The Lord's Supper is something unique to what we do here as a church. And there are a lot of churches that have adopted foot washing as a third ordinance that they do. How many of you have ever heard of a church or been to a church or maybe been a member of a church that performed foot washing as a regular part of their church activities? Okay. Um, I've got some people on staff that go to churches that, that do this regularly, right? And it's based off this passage, right? It's based off this passage where Jesus says, what I've done, do to each other, right? There's another passage that references uh, foot washing in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10. Talking about the widows to enroll in the service of your church and, and how to take care of them. It says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. If she, was brought up, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. It's the only other time that it's mentioned, this idea of foot washing, right? So the question may come up as to, well, should we be doing this or not doing this within our church? Just so that you're informed, the reason that we would not do this in our church context is that it's not mentioned in the epistles in the New Testament like baptism and the Lord's Supper is, right? There's no instructions given for it. There's no commands given for it. So because of that missing element, right? Baptism and Lord's Supper show up in these New Testament epistles as the church is being formed. What's supposed to be part of regular church activity? Foot washing is absent beyond this passage. And when you read this passage, the foot washing that she's doing makes most sense in the context of her own home, showing hospitality when people come over, she's willing to wash the feet of those who visit her, right? So Jesus is not necessarily commanding us to do this specific act, but he's using it as an example of the type of acts that we should do for each other, right? So are we commanded to wash each other's feet? Not necessarily, but we are certainly commanded to do the least desirable types of acts as a way to serve each other. We look for those opportunities. We take advantage of those opportunities. We show selflessness and humility by serving others in that context. And then lastly, number six, we serve others with an an expectation of blessing, but no expectations of being served in return. Make sure you get this. Because you could sit here and say, you know what? I, I need to be serving people better. I need, I need to be looking for ways to serve. I could certainly do a better job in my workplace, at home. I need, to, I need to give of myself more. I do need to put my needs or other people's needs above my own needs. 
But as soon as you start moving in that direction, there is such a fleshly tendency to create expectations of, well, now what are you going to do for me? Right? Like, I just washed your feet. I just, I just did the most least desirable act for you. When are you going to sign up to wash my feet? Right? Because mine will be dirty tomorrow. And since I did yours today, you should probably do mine tomorrow. Right? That, that's typically how our minds work, is that once we've performed some great act of service, we immediately say, now I can just sit back and it's your turn. Right? The truth here is that our, sor- our service towards others should bring us personal joy and should inspire others to serve, but not as a way to pay us back. I do think it's right for us to expect to be blessed because Jesus says that we will be. Now, what that exactly means, open to interpretation, don't expect to get a paycheck in the mail, compensation for the great act of service that you did by emptying the dishwasher today, right? But Jesus does tell us in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Well, how are we blessed? Well, we saw in 1 John that when we love, not in word and talk, but in deed and truth, what happens to us? We find assurance of our salvation, right? That's a a tremendous blessing, right? Like if that's the only blessing that were to come from my acts of service, that, that I gain deeper assurance that I am clean, not because of my acts of service, right? But because there's a heart change that has occurred in me that I could never generate on my own that's completely a work of the Holy Spirit, that he would ever take a selfish individual and begin to turn and transform his heart to want to serve other people out of humility and out of selflessness. Man, I can step back and not not say, praise Jesus, I'm saved, because look how awesome I am. But to step back and say, praise Jesus, that he would ever use me to do what just happened there, because I know myself well enough to know that without him working in me, that would have never happened right? Even in our greatest acts of service, God should be getting all kinds of crazy glory for that. Because in our selfishness, we would never get on our hands and feet and wash people's feet. We would never do it unless something's changing in us. We would sit there like Judas. We would sit there like Judas. And yet he changes us to where we do desire to put the needs of others above our own needs. So we should absolutely expect blessing from this, not physical, material blessings, but spiritual blessings from this, right? But we should not ever expect to be served in return. Jesus doesn't wash their feet and then say, mine still need to be done, right? What does he say? He says, y'all need to go and do this to others, right? So any act of service that I give to you, I fail. We fail if we serve others and then keep a record of... um, of how well we are served back. We fail if we serve others and then keep a record of how well we are served back. Right? I can get great joy that if I serve you, I give, I do something for you, and then I hear that you have gone and done it to somebody else. That should be enough for me. That my act of service impressed upon your heart a need to serve others as well. Not to serve me back, but to serve others right? Because that's what Jesus does. He serves them and then doesn't say, now it's your turn, boys. Like, let me prop my feet up and y'all all wash my feet. No, he says, y'all need to, y'all need to do this for each other. 
right? Like y'all need to do this for others. And that has to be our perspective too. We serve faithfully. We serve in our darkest hours, right? We serve with a mindset of love. We serve when we feel like we deserve to be served. We serve others when they don't deserve to be served by us. We serve them by doing the jobs that nobody else wants to do. And we do it with zero expectations of being served back by those people. We just give of ourselves and we put their needs above our own needs. And if they fail to do it back to us, we don't stop doing it. We don't stop doing it. All right, three points that I want you to remember from this and we're done. This is where our kids' notes come into play today. Point number one, no one is above serving. For our kids, everyone's called to serve, right? No one is above serving, right? Doesn't matter what position you hold. Doesn't matter if you're an elder in this church or a, a, a new Christian that just got saved last week. Right? No one is above serving. Everybody's called to serve. Jesus had the, 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 the best credentials for saying, I don't have to serve. And yet he showed an attitude of service. No one's above serving. Number two, no job is below me. For our kids, I should be willing to do any job to serve someone else. There's no job below me. There's no job that I can say, that's for somebody else to do, not me. What Jesus did was for a Gentile person to do. He's the greatest Jew, right? Should have been a Gentile, according to their culture, doing it. And he steps down and does it for them. And then lastly, number three, no one is below being served by me. So everybody's called to serve. No matter what the job is, we're supposed to do it. And there's not anybody that's exempt from our service, right? No one is below being served by me. For our kids, I should be willing to serve anyone. So we all have to find ways to serve. We should be the type of people who embrace the least desirable ways to serve. Man, imagine the reputation if at your job place, you are known as the person who always signs up for the least desirable jobs, the least desirable shifts. Or when these things aren't really assigned, it's just expected that somebody has to do this, that you're always the one doing it. You're always the one doing it, right? Like Anna's a great example of this because we never asked her to take the trash out in our church every Sunday. She just started doing it. And she just still continues to do it. And sometimes when she's not here, it doesn't get done. Because we just look around and say, somebody else will have to do that, right? What if we had the reputation that wherever, wherever our context is, we're just known as the people who always do the least desirable jobs, that we see it as a, as a way not to earn God's favor, not to earn the favor of our coworkers, but we see it as a way to embrace joyfully an opportunity to put needs of others above our own needs. Your application for this week, identify one to two new ways you can serve in your context, whether that's in your home, whether that's at your workplace, one to two new ways you can serve in your context this week, specifically looking to serve in ways that nobody else prefers, things that you can do that nobody else prefers to do that you can say, you know what, I'll do that. I'll serve in that way in my context. Our family worship questions for this week. Number one, how does serving others show that we love Jesus? And then number two, what more appropriate, fun way to have a conversation than by washing each other's feet, right? Take some time to wash each other's feet this week and discuss ways to serve that nobody else wants to do. Because I can guarantee you nobody in your house wants to wash your feet. 
No matter how much your spouse loves you, that's, that's one that they would prefer not to do probably, right? So you can have a healthy conversation this week with your family, your kids, get together, take some time to wash each other's feet, right? We don't have to do this as an ordinance, but we certainly can do it as a good teaching tool, right? Because while it's not a cultural thing for us to watch each other, wash each other's feet anymore when somebody comes to our house, it's still pretty gross, still something that you wouldn't want to do, right? So it still holds that example for us. So spend some time talking as a family this week, um, ways to serve that nobody else wants to, um, and do it over a basin of water. All right, let's pray together. God, we thank you for this passage. We know that it, it presses in on us in ways that maybe make us a little bit uncomfortable because we know we're not prone to think this way a lot of times. We're, we're oftentimes still very selfish, and when our circumstances are not what we prefer, we typically take a break from serving. We typically think of ourselves too highly and think that we deserve to be served more than we should be serving others. God, we're oftentimes very critical of other people and decide that they don't deserve our service. God, oftentimes we, we pass off tasks that are undesirable for somebody else to do. God, I pray that you would change us and, and make us the type of people who, who follow your example, who, despite our positions, despite our circumstances, are sensitive enough to identify needs, even if they're difficult, dirty, undesirable, that we see needs around us, we see ways to serve people around us, and we take advantage of those. We, we seize them joyfully. God, protect us from being the type of people who move in this direction and start serving and then grow disenchanted when, when we're not being served back. God, you never promised that we would be. God, instead, Father, I pray that you would keep us encouraged that we would not grow weary, that we would not uh, lose heart, that instead we would, we would keep serving and that we would be content with the blessings that come from that the spiritual blessings that come from that. God, help us to see the example that Jesus set here in his darkest hour. And help us to seek to follow that this week. Help us to see ways around us that we can serve this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.